join today? Yes. Do you see the banjo there at the end with Tim? And that, wow, we got to see some more of that, I think, right? I don't know. That's some good stuff. Well, I hope you're, hope you're enjoying yourself. It's a, it's a great weekend for us. Of course, we have outdoor baptism today, which is just a great event for us where we get to witness people who have uh, come to Christ recently, usually, and have never followed God in believer's baptism. And that's out at White Star Park out in Gibsonburg. You can Google that, and we will be out there, I think, serving food. I think Michael said at noon, and then after third service, we'll be out there and we'll start baptizing baptizing around one. I, I think we have 60, 70 people, and we've had a lot of baptisms already this year. And it's just cool watching people have made this decision to follow Christ, uh, to follow through with believers' immersion. It's just a, a great weekend of celebration. Actually, Larry Carr and his wife are celebrating 61 years uh, this weekend. And uh, Emil Sellier, we celebrated his 90th birthday yesterday. Where, where are you at, Emil? I saw him walk in. I'm missing it. Oh, right back there. Yeah, back on the back row there. Yeah, so just a great, great time of, of celebration. So, uh, and, then, and then I do have one prayer request. Uh, a lot of you have been praying for Cindy Mosier, and uh, I've been praying for her every day, and many of you have. She's been cleared, uh, and she might be here in this service. I don't know what service she normally comes to, but uh, she's been cleared for a liver transplant, and so the next step is to find a, a donor and, and sifting through people and all that. And, and so I would just like you to pray for that process for her, uh, that that would go well for her. So please keep Cindy in your prayers. We're, we're in a series called This Explains Everything, and it's just about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters of the Bible. And Last Sunday, we were in Genesis chapter 1, and we talked about what God was telling us there, but we also talked about some things for the head, because Genesis 1, some people can't get past this, and, and basically how when it comes to creation or uh, the other views of origins, those other, what I would call naturalistic views, don't answer the biggest questions. Where did the universe come from? How did, how did uh, non-matter, non-living matter become living? You know, these, these questions, they, they don't answer those. How, and with our, the DNA evidence that we have today, how, how does the simple become complex? Those are the three major issues that most people explaining origins apart from Genesis cannot answer scientifically. And we talked about how you can interpret scientific evidence from one of two philosophies, naturalism or naturalism plus. Anyway, don't want to get into that again. And if you want, if you really love that and want to hear more about that, we did a series about a year ago called Making Sense of God, and, and some of that's in there. But today we're going to continue. And remember now, in Genesis 1, God has created, and his creation was a mature creation. When he created the animals, they were mature. Plant life, they, they were grown plants. Uh, when he created man, man was a, a, had the appearance of age, as did woman, and he created the universe, and what we can infer from that in creation is that the universe would also be a mature creation with the appearance of age, and although scientifically it's hard to know exactly what that would look like, I'm betting it looks exactly like what we see now. God created. And so now we're in Genesis chapter 2. And as we look at Genesis 2, what we're going to find out is that uh, 
Human beings flourish when we follow God's patterns. And we're going to dive into that. So turn to Genesis 2 if you have your Bibles with you. That is not hard to find, right? Genesis 2. I mean, it's right, right back there at the beginning. Second chapter of the Bible. Turn there. And here's what we're going to discover. Today, people have all so kinds of questions that need to be answered. Uh, things that need to be explained. How we, people have questions today about how we structure our lives. People, as things get more complex and uh, people have questions about how we interact with the world around us, meaning uh, nature and the created world. How, how do we interact with that? People have questions about how we should interact in relationships as male and female even. Well, all these are explained to us in Genesis chapter 2, and that's what I want us to see. And again, it's following God's pattern. That's the secret to flourishing is following God's pattern. And in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to find that the secret to flourishing as human beings is to follow God's pattern for rest, for rule, and I'll explain that, and for sexuality. All right, so let's dive in. Genesis, we left off at the end of Genesis 1, and the first thing we're going to see is that God wants us to, we can flourish by following God's pattern for rest. So here's the last verse. We read the whole chapter last time. We won't do that this time, but here's how it ended in verse 31 of chapter 1. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And, and it could just stop right there. I mean, that's a great concluding sentence. It was all very good, morning, evening, sixth day, boom. I mean, why go on? Why a seventh day? Well, we're going to, God's going to explain that to us in just a moment. So now Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus, the heavens and earth were completed and all their hosts by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven." Do you, do you catch the repetition? You catch the importance? He's saying he rested from creation. He rested from creation on the seventh day. And that brings us, you know, today in our world, almost universally, there is a pattern of a seven-day week. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why is a week seven days? Why is a week seven days in, in all cultures? Why is that? And even in ancient times, the most... Uh, common week set of time was seven days, although some cultures had some variance to that, but by far the most common. Why? Why is that? Why not four days or five? I mean, we have five fingers. Why not five days? That would be convenient. Or ten. Why seven? And, and then about all of time, think about it. A day, what's a day? A day is the time it takes the earth to turn on its axis in relation to the sun, right? 
So 24 hours, that's, that's why a day is a day. A year is a year because that's how long it takes for the earth to go completely one revolution around the sun. That's a year. That makes sense. A month is a month because that's from a new moon, the time period of a new moon to a new moon again. There's zero astronomical evidence for a week being seven days long. Why? Why is it? Now, some people would say, well, that was just an attempt to divide the lunar cycle into four equal parts, and it didn't come out quite equally, but it's the best we could do. But, but then why four equal parts? Why not three parts or five parts? Why seven days for our week? Well, I think it all goes... The, what historians would say, well, this all goes back 3,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago, to when Moses wrote this passage that we just read. That's where it came from, is what historians would say. But we know, and there's historical evidence, that the week existed before Moses wrote Genesis, because Moses wrote Genesis 3,500 years ago, but he was writing about something that had happened previous to that, and the week was already in existence. So why a seven-day week? Well, because of creation. That's why. That's why it's a universal thing in our world. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. As a matter of fact, there's been attempts to get rid of the seven-day week about 100 years ago in Russia. Russia it was trying to eliminate all religion. Well, days of the week have religious significance. Christians meet on Sundays, Jewish people on Saturdays. And so they went to a five-day work week with everybody getting one of those five days off. So at any given moment, there were 80% of their workforce was working, and that was sort of around-the-clock kind of thing. And so they did that to eliminate religion and also to increase production. They did that in 1929. By 1931, they were realizing this is not working. Families are falling apart. Machines are falling apart because they never stop. There's no time for maintenance. So they, they, everything's breaking down. So then they shift to a six-day week in 1931. They tried that for about nine years. In 1940, they gave up on the six-day week and went to a seven-day week. Why is that? Here they're specifically trying not to do a seven-day week, and they end up back on a seven-day week. Well, because we're saying, well, there's a reason for that. It's called creation, because God designed us to rest one day in seven. Now, I know this whole seven-day thing can be a little confusing to Christians, because God's resting on the seventh day. That's the Sabbath. That's Saturday. And then, but here we're worshiping on Sunday. And the way that happened is in, in the first century, Jewish people were keeping the Sabbath. By the way, this is the only of the Ten Commands uh, that's not repeated in, in Scripture in the New Testament in the same way it was in the Old Testament. But anyway, uh, people are gathering. And then after the resurrection of Christ that happened on the first day of the week, what we call Sunday, then Christians started celebrating the resurrection on the first day of the week. Now, early Christians in the first century, in the very beginning of the church, they were in the synagogue on Saturdays, and then they celebrated the resurrection on Sundays. 
But increasingly, over the first few decades after Christ's resurrection, more and more they were no longer welcome in the synagogue. And then that left them, although they were meeting daily, their special day of celebration became Sunday, the first day of the week. And so, and we have that evidence in the scripture in Acts and 1 Corinthians, so you can look that up. But that's how, that's how that happened. So, but how is it if God's saying, well, there's seven days, we work six, we rest one. Well, that's, that's not the way we do it in America, and that's different in different cultures. But here, it's for a lot of people, not everybody, for a lot of people, there's a five-day work week. The five-day work week, by the way, is only about 100 years old. Do you realize that? Isn't that weird? I mean, that basically started about 100 years ago. Some factories that were closed on Sunday in the northeast, in the industrial northeast, they started closing on Saturday in respect of their Jewish workforce. So Christians could have their day Sunday, but then increasingly, so the Jewish people could also have their day, and then that got down to a five-day work week. As a matter of fact, in 1929, just up the road, Henry Ford converted his factory from a six-day week to a five-day week and paid without a reduction in pay for his employees. So what, I'm, what am I saying with all that? Well, I, I'm just saying this. Hey, if you only have to work five days, that's great because you are made for more. You know, so if you only have to work five, hey, you should, you should rejoice in that. That gives you a whole nother day to get stuff done. And, and the average work week in America is about 47 hours. And you know, if that's, if that's your system, well, well, that's great for you, but here's the caution. Here's the violation of God's pattern. If you insist on working seven full days a week, week after week, you are heading for trouble because we human beings are created to rest one day in seven. And if you don't do that, if you don't follow God's pattern in this order of rest, you will not flourish like you would if you did. That's the caution for those workaholic, seven-day-a-week type people. That's, that's what God's saying to us. God gave us a reminder that there's more to life than work. There's more. Some people may need to hear this twice. There's more than life. More to life than work. And by the way, in other times, this was a real exercise in trusting God. In an agricultural society, in harvest time, where that harvest and getting it right and getting it collected and getting it harvested meant whether you would survive over the winter months. It was a real exercise and trust to take that one day in seven, even in harvest time. It was an exercise and trust in God. So we flourish best when we follow God's pattern of rest that we at least take one day off from work a week. And then also we flourish by following God's pattern for rule or dominion. So we've gone over Genesis chapter 1, and now we're in chapter 2, and we realize that as God created the universe, the heavens, the earth, and everything in it, that then God created human beings in his image, and as he created human beings in his image, he set 
human beings to rule or have dominion over the rest of the earth. Now, this has, has to do with how we interact with the rest of creation in nature. We have dominion. And even when we can discover scientific laws and look at scientific evidence of an ordered creation, some people, they look at that kind of evidence and they say, oh, well, this explains that and this explains that and we don't need God to explain that. It all makes sense. This is all evidence against God. That's not evidence against God. That's evidence for an intelligent designer that we have these laws and that we can discover. And, and again, as I said last time, that's where science came from. Christian people understanding that God created an orderly creation that we can study, investigate, and find out about. Because we have dominion. We have rule. Now, there's a shift that happens in chapter 2 from chapter 1 in how God refers to himself. Before, it was just God, which is just a a generic reference to God in Trinity. But now, all of a sudden, it's Yahweh God or the Lord God. And now, in an English translation, anytime that you read those four letters, Lord, and they're all capitalized, only when they're all capitalized, when they're all capitalized, that's actually translating a Hebrew word that is the personal name of God, which is translated, I am, I am, uh, I am, but we say it as Yahweh, or some people throw some different vowels in there and make that Jehovah, Yahovah. But Yahweh is the personal name of God. And, and the reason it's done that way is there was a Jewish tradition that they would never speak because they didn't want to violate the command of taking the Lord's name in vain. They never spoke his name. So because of that, they wrote it. They wouldn't speak it. Because of that, later when vowel pointing developed in the Hebrew language, they never added the vowel pointing because nobody knew how it was pronounced because nobody said the name. And so we're just guessing at the Yahweh. But the English translators and many translations kind of kept that tradition. And rather than uh, translate the name or write the name out in consonants uh, the way we would in English, it just has become four capital letters spelling Lord. So Lord always is God's personal name. So Lord God, if Lord is capitalized, means Yahweh God, personal name. God. And why? Why would God do this? Because all of a sudden now we see this emphasis on his relationship with us. He's becoming more personal. Now he's not God over everything. Now he's the God that's over everything that wants a real personal relationship with human beings. And so now in chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 15. But before I do that, sometimes people read this uh, and, and verses before this, in between what I just read in verse 15. And it's a little confusing because it seems like it's kind of a restating of what happened in chapter 1, but in a different order. But that's not what's happening. H- how many of you have ever Google Earthed your house? All right, so you, you go to the internet, you get on Google Earth, right? And then you pull it up, and then it's like the whole United States. And then you zoom in, and then you got Ohio. Are you with me? And then you zoom in a little more, and then you got Sandusky County or Seneca County, wherever you're at. And then you zoom in a little more, boom, and there's your house. And you're going, wow, I didn't mow my lawn the day they took this picture. You know, what I'm doing, this is what's happening in Genesis. Genesis 1 is the broad view. 
It's the universe, the heavens, that's the way they would say universe, the heavens and the earth is created by God. Now in chapter two, there's a zooming in on one specific place on the earth that's located as near as we could tell, somewhere near Assyria or modern day Iraq, Iran area that, Dan, that was probably greatly changed during the flood. But zoomed in to this one specific place. So that's what's happening to clear up that confusion. And now let's begin reading in chapter two, beginning in verse 15. And this shows that God provides for those he rules. That's how he rules. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now the first thing we learn in this we flourish when we follow God's pattern of rule is how God rules. God rules as to, for our benefit, for the benefit and provision of those he rules over. And really, it's the same for, with us. We've already learned it in chapter 1, and we see this in chapter 2 bear out that God created mankind in his image, and then he gave us dominion or rule over the earth. The fish, the animals, we have dominion over the earth, over nature. And, and you have to understand something, that this sort of rule, I, I know we sometimes think of rule and we picture a tyrant that's, you know, just uh, ruling for his own benefit and everybody's suffering under him. That is completely opposite of the way God uses this term. When God rules, it's for our benefit. It's for our provision. He takes care of us. And when he gives us dominion and rule, that's the same for us, that we, we it, that whole idea of ruling includes provision, care, good intention. It's a privilege that God gives to us. And it's also another reminder, as we had a reminder in chapter one, that people are separated from the rest of creation and all other animals. And we live in a culture today that wants to blur that, that we're just some higher form of the exact same thing. But it's only human beings that are made in God's image. And so what I'm trying to say, and you know, I'll probably get some emails on this or whatever, but here's what I'm trying to say. Pets are not equal to human beings. And the reason I, I want to remind, and, and I think we all know that, but here's why I need a reminder. Because sometimes people get sentimental about the loss of a pet, and they get a little sloppy with their theology as they start expressing things. And, and I'm not here to offend you. You know, I'll just ask for your forgiveness in advance, but uh, I don't if that's even biblical. But anyway, it's <laughs> pets, we cannot elevate them to human beings. Well, they're like a part of the family. Well, 
If you mean part of the family, like a little furry creature that's down there and doesn't really understand anything, I get that. But if you mean part of the family, no. That's, you know, and, and don't get overly sentimental about, well, when my pet dies, you know, I'm going to see them in heaven. You know, Jesus didn't die for Fluffy. You know, whiskers especially, whiskers going down. You know, but, you know, God did not die for pets. So I, so... Christians, let's not cause people confusion by, be, by expressing overly sentimental things about our pets that really aren't true. So just a, just a caution there. Um, what, do I, what do I mean by, you know, there's a difference. You know, that, We've all, you know, the sad dog commercial, the, the really sad eyes, the, you know, give money to the, yeah, whatever that is. And again, not trying to offend anybody here, but you realize that need is nothing compared to humans who have needs like that, right? Right? And again, we, we live in a world where if I decided to take my dog's fetuses out of my dog that I would go to jail. But that can happen to a human being legally. We have devalued human life, not intentionally, but as we have overly valued animal life. And we just need to be cautious about that. And again, just, I won't even read those emails, so don't even worry about that. We don't risk our lives to save an animal. You don't risk a human life to save an animal. Somebody in between services was telling me about a study they did in California that basically said, if your pet was drowning in your backyard swimming pool and your neighbor was drowning in your backyard swimming pool, who would you save? And they had these mixed reactions. Well, I love my pet. I don't even know my neighbor. <laughs> that, by the way, for Christians is the wrong answer, right? <laughs> we don't risk our lives to save our pets. We do risk our lives to save a fellow human being. Now, to rule well in God's eyes of ruling well is, would include to never mistreat or abuse an animal. I mean, you just got to know that that's part of ruling well, but that's ruling over. It, it's a different category. All right, enough of that. So, we flourish as human beings by following God's pattern for rest, and we flourish as human beings by following God's pattern for rule that we provide and protect, and it's a benefit for those we rule over, not the other way around. And then we flourish when we follow God's pattern for sexuality. And so I want to pick that up. Uh, that's another section of Scripture here. And uh, it's in Genesis. We'll pick it up at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord, again, written 3,500 years ago. That's a whole other story. But verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this 
is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. <laughs> because she was taken out of man. And now verse 24, key verse. That's not the key verse. This is the key verse. Verse 24 is a key verse because it's been quoted by Jesus, quoted four times in the New Testament. This is marriage right here. Verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so here you have the basis, God invented us, God invented genders, God invented marriage, and he, he gave us this, but there's a lot of confusion about this in our world today. By the way, the confusion is not just with non-Christians. Sometimes there's confusion even in Christian communities. How many of you ever heard of the Shakers? In the 18th and 19th century, they're, they're the, the, this religious sect called the Shakers. They were known for their simple style of furniture. You know what I'm saying? A Shaker style of furniture? Well, they had a very peculiar belief in the Bible. They believed in abstinence, even for married couple, abstinence from sex. And that's why now all we have is their furniture. I mean, they're gone. <laughs> So all, we just, we only know they were here because there's some furniture laying around because there's no more shakers. But God's saying that he created us, and, and he said this at the beginning, male and female. And he says this over and over. He's not saying that about the animals. He's saying that about us created in God's image. And we just have to know this whole gender issue that, that's always being debated in our world today, that our gender is part of how God created us. God created us as male and female. That's by God's design. And that is emphasized in scripture. And, and people try to erase that, but, but it's part of our makeup from our creator. Now, what people have trouble with is the word that I read a few times there, helper. Did anybody notice? I mean, don't raise your hand or anything, but I know some of you are sitting there and that word helper is like, like you know, fingernails on a chalkboard, helper. I guess people don't even say there's chalkboards, but whatever, you know, you just didn't like it. Helper. But you gotta know, that's an English translation of a Hebrew word that in Hebrew doesn't have any of those connotations. Because in English, when we, we hear helper, we're, we're thinking like, oh, helper, like little assistant, like can't really do the big job, but you know, they can help a little bit. Like, you know, they're not really uh, competent, but they can be competent in just a couple of these little things. That's not the way this word is used in Hebrew. The way we know that is because this same exact word helper that, that's applied to the woman, that's what everybody doesn't like, is also many times throughout the Old Testament applied to God, that God is our helper. So I just want to get beyond this notion that the word helper has anything to do with inferiority, because obviously God is not inferior to us, right? So that's not what helper means. 
There's no inferiority implied here. There's no less worth. And that's what everybody reacts to. But that's just a modern day construct of this word that was not present in the Hebrew. But it's the same word. It means helper. But we, we've just added all kinds of baggage to that that wasn't there then. Does that make sense? Thanks. And here we have marriage instituted. God invents marriage. Oh, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh. Marriage, one of those things that's common in every culture on earth. Where did that come from? Oh, maybe Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because it explains everything. <laughs> so God creates marriage. And, and then we have this thing. We, we call it leave, cleave, and weave. You know, it's what pastors do. Leave, cleave. Leave their... Leave, leave their mother and father. Now, your primary relationship now is no longer with your family of origin or your parents. Now, as you get married, you're establishing a new family, and now this other person is your primary earthly relationship after God. So leave, that's what leave means. Cleave is hold on tightly, cling to bonded to, that you are hanging on for the distance, that you are there together, that you are tightly holding on to each other for life, and we'll get to that, but tightly hanging on, and then weave is that, and then the two became one flesh, and this is the concept of sexuality. So this leave, cleave, weave gives us the pattern for marriage. And of course, that's controversial in our world today, especially our country, right? And it's just sad. We wonder why friends of ours who, who live in gay communities, gay lifestyle, why they experience such high levels, super high, hundreds of times higher levels of depression and suicide than the rest of us. Of course, the pushback that they have always had would be, well, that's because we're not fully accepted. But as their acceptance, think about that over the last 20 years, has increased dramatically, exponentially, that hasn't solved that problem. That's not affecting that. Why? Why is that? Well, it's simple. Because the farther we get away for, from God's pattern of sexuality, then the less we flourish as human beings in every area of our life, including sexuality. So the farther we get from God's ideal, the, the less we flourish as humans because we weren't designed that way. All this is part of how we were made. And so then, you know, it, it just, it kind of unfortunately makes sense. God invented sexuality God has given us a pattern so that we can thrive in sexuality, and that is that we should only have sexual relationships in the midst of a committed, lifelong commitment-type 
legally married kind of a relationship. You have legal marriage, you know, even if it's tying a rope or a string, you know, where the community observes these two people are together. Marriage is a universal thing. And there's that order, leave, cleave, and weave. Now, of course, couples today, you know, have, have heard so much that, well, you have to live together first so you can discover whether you're compatible or not. How many have heard that? I mean, I'm assuming everybody's heard that. I mean, you got to live, you got to kick the tire, you know, you know all those analogies. You, know, you got to live together first. You got to cohabitate. So you can know that if you're compatible, compatible, even compatible sexually, you know all these things. Study after study after study has shown that people who have not had a sexual relationship with each other before marriage are more likely to stay together in marriage. So what I'm saying is the statistics show just the opposite. And let me put it another way, because people are constantly trying to come up with new studies. Let me put it this way. There's never been a scientific study to show that cohabitating first in any way, shape, or form benefits a marriage as far as them staying together. Not one. But we have this myth in our culture. But it's completely false. Why is it completely false? Because Genesis explains everything. Because it's right here. God's pattern for sexuality is different. It's leave first and then cleave and then sexuality. That's what God wants. That's God's pattern. Of course, in a church like ours, and and I know some people are uncomfortable right now because We always have many couples in our church who are living together, people who are just discovering God, people who are new believers, and and we're glad that you're all here. But let me pick on the guys. Men, if you're living, if you're cohabitating with somebody that you love, a lady, you're not really loving her. You know how to really love her? Love her by committing your life to her. Love her by legally getting married. That's what marriage is. That's what God's talking about. Not just, hey, we don't need no piece of paper. No, that's not. God's saying a le- this is a legal marriage. Whatever is legal in your culture between a man and a woman that makes that observable, that everybody goes, oh, those two are committed for life. That's how you love her. That's how you love her. Don't fall short of that. Commit to her. Marry her. Make it official. To flourish, use the pattern that God created. Of course, we have all kinds of couples here at Grace, you know, who have been together and then they come to grace and then they, they learn about God and somehow God's Holy Spirit impacts their heart and they become believers. And then usually it's a matter of weeks or months where they start feeling like, or, or maybe there's a lag between one and the other becoming believers. 
But then all of a sudden, they're coming in going, hey, we think we need to get married. And we're like, we think you're right. Let us help you do that. And, and we joyously help them tie the knot to get married, to honor God, but also honors each other. That happens all the time here at Grace. So if that's your spot, if that's where you're at, come in, let's talk about that. It's okay. Not what you're doing is okay, but I mean, it's okay that you're there. We get it. Come in and talk. We understand. And no matter where you're at or what you've done, we're glad you're here at Grace. Because we're just a group of people who are looking at God's Word and trying to apply it to our lives so that we can live according to, to God's pattern, the, the way He wants us to live. And for those of us who are Christians, we're only doing that out of gratitude because we've come to the realization that, that we've, met, we've all messed up God's pattern for our life in one way or another, if not every way. And because God is a righteous and just God, He says... Just as we would expect that when we do wrong, that it should be punished. You can't have justice. And God is perfectly just, but you can't have justice without punishment. And then what comes as a, a shocking to su surprise to us is the, the correct and right and just punishment for our rebellion against our creator is separation from him forever. That's the right thing for me. That I, for my sin, that I'd be separated from God forever. But God still loves us and invites us into relationship. And because he rules, he is the provider and he provides a way, even at great cost. When he allowed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who existed with him in Trinity as God forever to come and take the flesh of a human being. 2,000 years ago, and Jesus lived a life without sin, never did one thing in violation to God's command, unlike any of us. And then he voluntarily went to the cross and allowed himself to be tortured to death on a Roman cross outside the walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, not as Superman, but as a man in flesh like us that could feel everything we could feel. And he voluntarily allowed himself to be tortured to death until he bled out, hanging on some pieces of wood. And he did that for us, to provide for us. He paid for our sin because we have no way of paying for our own sin. Because doing good things are what we're supposed to do. It doesn't erase the wrong things we've done. And the way that, that his death counts for us is by faith. And by faith means is that you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the very son of God, and that you trust in the fact that his death on the cross is sufficient to pay for all of your sins, past, present, future, no matter who you are or what you've done. And when you have that kind of faith, God says he will come into your life, he will never leave you, never forsake you, and that he will replace your sinfulness with the righteousness of Christ in God's eyes. And when we as Christians have received that, 
then we love the king who dared to die for us. And so in gratitude and joy, we try to follow the patterns that he has laid out for us because we know that's how we'll flourish. Because that's how we were created. And so if you've never made that most important decision in your life, that's what you should think about. That's the most important decision you'll ever make to place your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and to be saved from the correct and righteous punishment that we all deserve. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're confused about that, we'd be happy to talk to you in room one. We're going to close the service in just about a minute. If you'd like to talk, if you just want, I don't want to talk, but I'll take some information or something. We'll give you some information. You won't even have to talk. And if you have done that, but you haven't followed in believer's baptism, well, now we extended a week. Remember I said last Sunday, hey, maybe some of you should have done it and you didn't sign up and, and God's given you another, you know what? That happened. More people said, yeah, I should do that. Some of you might be sitting there, yeah, I still didn't do it. If God delays another week, maybe, yeah, you know. But if that's you, today you can walk down on the beach and meet Tim Weishart, Pastor Tim Weishart at 1230, and he'll talk to you and, and determine if, if you're ready to follow him on believer's baptism. You see, baptism is just the time that we gather together as a church and we celebrate all these people who have made decisions to follow Christ, and then they go public through believer's baptism. They get dunked underwater to symbolize, hey, I, I, my old life is over, and now I have a new life in Christ. It has nothing to do with heaven or hell. It's just being obedient to what God has called us to do. So we want you to come and celebrate with us. Uh, again, dinner's going to be served at noon. Uh, there's just hot dogs and stuff out there. There's a nice beach. Again, White Star Park near Gibsonburg. It's about a 20-minute drive from here. And then we'll start baptizing about 1 o'clock, and we have several people, and we're looking for... I know not everybody can do it, but boy, you get to witness our church family, how God's changed their lives. Let's stand together, and I'll close this in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the day, and Lord, we, for those of us who are believers, we thank you that, that you helped us to see and we understood our sin and rebellion against you and then the forgiveness that you offer us, and Lord, that's the answer to all our guilt and shame. It's, it's not ignoring it or pretending it doesn't exist, it's, it's being forgiven, and so we thank you for that, and Lord, for, for our friends or our family members or uh, neighbors who are here in our auditorium that haven't experienced that, Lord, I, we pray that your spirit would touch their hearts and, and they would just uh, feel uh, your call on their life. And uh, Lord, that you draw them to yourself. God, we thank you for this day of celebration and, uh, and your goodness to us as a church family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. Hope to see you out there at between noon, one o'clock when we start baptizing. 